Chapter One, Part Two of the Planet Strappers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Planet Strappers by Raymond Z. Gollum. Chapter One, Part Two. Well, the men have arrived, Jig announced. Maybe Charlie Reynolds' faint frown took exception to this remark. He was the only one in a suit, gray and tasteful, with a subdued flash to match the kind of car he drove. Few held this against him, nor the fact that he usually spent himself broke, nor the further fact that J. John Reynolds, tight-fisted president of the Jarviston First National Bank, was his grandfather. Charlie was an engineer at the new nuclear powerhouse just out of town. Charlie was what is generally known as a good guy. He was brash and sure, maybe too sure. He had a slight swagger, balanced by a certain benignancy. He was automatically the leader of the bunch, held most likely to succeed in their aims. Hi, gang, he breezed. Otto is bringing beer, Pepsi, and sandwiches from his joint across the street. Special day, so it's on me. Time to relax. Maybe unsnarl. Any new problems? Still plenty of old ones, Frank Nelson commented laconically. Has anybody suddenly decided to back out? Charlie chuckled. It's tiresome for me always to be asking that. He looked around, meeting carefully easy grins and grim expressions. No, I guess we're all shaggy folk, bent on high and wild living so far. So you know the only answer we can have. Hmm, Charlie. Arch Kuzak, the tough business-like twin, gruffed. We can get the archers now. I think Frank has our various sizes noted down. Let everybody sign up that wants an Archie. Better hurry, though. There'll be a run on them now that they're being almost given away. List all the other stuff we need, with approximate purchase price or cost of construction materials attached. Sure, we'll be way short of funds, but we can start with the items we can make ourselves now. The point is not to lose time. New restrictions may turn up and give us trouble if we do. We'll have to ride our luck for a break. Hell, you know the lists are already ready, Art, Frank Nelson pointed out. A bub for everybody, or the stuff to make it. Full-scale ionic drives, air restorers, and moisture reclaimers, likewise. Some of the navigation instruments we'll almost have to buy. Dehydrated food, flasks of oxygen and water, and blast-off drums to contain our gear, all are relatively simple. Worst, of course, is the blast-off price from one of the spaceports. Who could be rich enough to have a ground-to-orbit nuclear rocket of his own? Fifteen hundred bucks, a subsidized rate at that, just to lift a man and a thousand pounds of equipment into orbit. Five thousand dollars minimum per person is what we're going to need altogether. Gimp Hines, who always acted as if he expected to get off the Earth, too, had yielded his position inside the Archer to Tiflin, and had hobbled close. "'The cost scares a guy who has to go to school, too, so he can pass the tests,' he said. "'Well, don't worry, Frank. A thousand dollars buys a lot of stellene for bubs. And we can scratch up a few bucks of our own. I can find a hundred myself, saved from my TV repair work and my novelties business. Charlie here ought to be able to contribute a thousand. Same for you, Hollins. That'll buy parts and materials for some ionic motors, too. Oh, certainly, Gimp, Hollins growled. 
But Charlie Reynolds grinned. I can kick in that much, if I hold down a while, he said. Maybe more later. What we've got to have, however, is a loan. We can't expect a grant from the board. Sure, they want more people helping to develop resources in space, but they're swamped with requests. Let's not sweat, though. With a little time, I'll swing something. Hey, everybody, proposition. I move that whoever wants an archer put his name down for Frank. I further move that we have him order us a supply of stellene and basic materials for at least three more ionic motors. I also suggest that everybody donate as much cash as he can, no matter how little, and as much time as possible for making equipment. With luck, and if we get our applications for space fitness tests mailed to Minneapolis within a week, at least some of us should get off Earth by next June. Now, shall we sign for the whole deal? Art Kuzak hunched his shoulders and displayed white teeth happily. I'm a pushover, he said. Here I come. I like to see things roll. Likewise, said his brother Joe. Their signatures were both small in contrast to their size. Ramos, fully clad in the archer, clowned his way forward to write his name with great flourishes, his ballpoint clutched in a space glove. Tiflin made a fierce, nervous scrawl. Mitch Story wrote patiently in big, square letters. Gimp chewed his lip and signed, Walter Hines, in a beautiful, austere script, with a touch as fine as a master scientist's. "'I'll go along as far as they let me,' he muttered. "'I think it will be the same in my case,' David Lester stammered. He shook so much that his signature was only a quavering line. "'For laughs,' Eileen Sands said, and wrote daintily. Two and two Baines gulped, sighed, and made a jagged scribble, like the trail of a rocket gone nuts. Jig Hollins wrote in swooping, arrogant circles that came perhaps from his extra job as an advertising skywriter with an airplane. Frank Nelson was next, and Charlie Reynolds was last. Theirs was the most indistinctive signatures in the lot, just ordinary writing. So here we all are, on a piece of paper, pledged to victory or death, Reynolds laughed. Anyhow, we're out of a rut. Nelson figured that that was the thing about Charlie Reynolds. Some might not like him entirely, but he could get the bunch unsnarled and in motion. Old Paul Hendricks had come back from waiting on some casual customers in the store. "'Want to sign too, Paul?' Reynolds chuckled. "'Nope. That would make thirteen, Paul answered, his eyes twinkling. "'I'll watch and listen, and maybe tell you if I think you're off-beam.' "'Here comes Otto with the beer and sandwiches,' Ramos burst out. They all crowded around heavy Otto Kramer and his basket, all except Frank Nelson and Paul Hendricks, and Eileen Sands, who made the ancient typewriter click in the little office enclosure as she typed up the order list that Nelson would mail out with a bank draft in the morning. Nelson had a powerful urge to talk to the old man, who was his longtime friend, and who had said little all during the session, though he knew more about space travel than any of them, as much as anybody can know without ever having been off Earth. "'Hey, Paul,' Frank called in a low tone, leaning his elbows across the workbench. "'Yeah?' "'Nothing,' Frank Nelson answered with a lopsided smile. But he felt that that was the right word, when your thoughts and feelings became too huge and complicated for you to express with any ease. Grandeur, poetry, music, for instance— 
the haunting popular song, Fire Streak, about the burial of a spaceman at orbital speed in the atmosphere of his native planet, and fragments of history such as covered wagons. All sorts of subjects, ideas, and pictures were swirling inside his head, wanting to sample everything in the solar system, home versus the distance, and the fierce urge to build a wild history of his own, gentleness and lust to be fulfilled sometime. There would be a girl, and there were second thoughts to twist your guts and make you wonder if all your savage drives were foolish. But there was a duty to be equal to your era, helping to give dangerously crowded humanity on earth more room, dispersal, a chance for race survival if some unimaginable violence were turned loose. He thought of the names of places out there. Serenititis Base, Serene, on the moon, lusty, fantastic, Palestine, on the golden asteroid, Palace. He remembered his parents killed in a car wreck just outside of Jarviston four Christmases ago, some present. But there was one small benefit. He was left free to go where he wanted, without any family complications, like other guys might have. Poor Dave Lester. How was it that his mother allowed him to be with the bunch at all? How did he work it? Or was she the one that was right? Paul Hendricks had leaned his elbows on the workbench, too. Sure, nothing, Frank, he said, and his watery eyes were bland. The old codger understood. Neither of them said anything for a minute, while the rest of the bunch, except Eileen, who was still typing, guzzled Pepsi and beer and wolfed hot dogs. There was lots of courage lifting noise and laughter. Ramos said something, and Jig Hollins answered him back. Think there'll be any girls in grass skirts out there in the asteroid belt, Max? Oh, they'll arrive, Ramos assured him. Nelson didn't listen any more. His and Paul's attention had wandered to the largest color photo thumbtacked to the wall above the TV set, and the shelf of dog-eared technical books. It showed a fragile, pearly ring, almost diaphanous, hanging tilted against the spatial blackness and pinpoint stars. Its hub was a cylindrical spindle, with radial guys of fine stainless steel wire. It was like the earliest ideas about a space station, yet it was also different. To many, Frank Nelson and Paul Hendricks certainly included, such devices had as much beauty as a yacht under full sail had ever had for anybody. Old Paul smirked with pleasure. It's a shame, ain't it, Frank, calling a pretty thing like that a bub? It's an ugly word. Or even a space bubble. Technical talk gets kind of cheap. I don't mind, Frank Nelson answered. Our first one here could look just as nice, inflated and riding free against the stars. He touched the crinkly material draped across its wooden support. It will, the old man promised. Funny, not so long ago people thought that spaceships would have to be really rigid, all metal. So how did they turn out? Made of stellene, mostly, an improved form of polyethylene, almost the same stuff as a weather balloon. A few millimeters thick, light, perfectly flexible when deflated, Nelson added. Cut out and cement your bub together in any shape you choose. Fold it up firmly, like a parachute. It makes a small package that can be carried up into orbit in a blast-off rocket with the best efficiency. There, attached flasks of breathable atmosphere, fill it out in a minute. Eight pounds pressure makes it fairly solid in a vacuum. So behold, 
You've got breathing and living room inside. There's nylon cording for increased strength, as in an automobile tire, though not nearly as much. There's a silicone gum between the thin double layers to seal possible meteor punctures. A darkening lead salt impregnation in the otherwise transparent stellene cuts radiation entry below the danger level and filters the glare and the hard ultraviolet out of the sunshine. So there you are, all set up. Rig your hub and guy wires, old Paul carried on cheerfully. Attach your sun-powered ionic drive. Set up your air restorer. Spin your vehicle for centrifuge gravity. And you're ready to move out of orbit. They laughed, because getting into space wasn't as easy as they made it sound. The bubs, one of the basic inventions that made interplanetary travel possible, were, for all their almost vagabondish simplicity, still a concession in lightness and compactness for atmospheric transit, to that first and greatest problem, breaking the terrific initial grip of Earth's gravity from the ground upward and gaining stable orbital speed. Only a tremendously costly rocket, with a thrust greater than its own weight when fully loaded, could do that. Buying a blast-off passage had to be expensive. Figuring, scrounging, counting our pennies, risking our necks, Nelson chuckled, and maybe, even if we make it, we'll just be a third-rate group, lost in the crowd that's following the explorers. Just the same, I wish you could plan the go, too, Paul. Don't rub it in, kid but I figure on kicking in a couple of thousand bucks soon to help you characters along. Nelson felt an embarrassed lift of hope. You shouldn't, Paul, he advised. We've overrun and taken possession of your shop, almost your store, too. You've waived any profit whenever we've bought anything. That's enough favors. My dough, my pleasure. Let's each get one of Reynolds' beers and hot dogs, if any are left. Later, when all the others had gone except Gimp Hines, they uncovered the archer, which everyone else had tried. Paul got into it first, then Nelson took his turn, sitting as if within an enclosed vault, hearing the gurgle of bubbles passing through the green, almost living fluid of the air restorer capsule. Chlorophane, like the chlorophyll of green plants, could break up exhaled carbon dioxide, freeing the oxygen for rebreathing but it was synthetic, far more efficient, and it could use much stronger sunlight as an energy source. Like chlorophyll, too, it produced edible starches and sugars that could be imbibed, mixed with water, through a tube inside the archer's helmet. Even with the archer enclosing him, Nelson's mind didn't quite reach. He had learned a lot about space, but it remained curiously inconceivable to him. He felt the frost-fringed thrill. Now we know a little, he chortled, after he stood again, just in his usual garb. It was almost eight o'clock. Gimp Hines hadn't gone to supper, or to celebrate decision, on one of the last evenings of any kind of freedom from work. He couldn't wait for that. Under fluorescent lights, he was threading wire through miniature grommets, hurrying to complete the full-size ionic drive. He said, hi, Frank, and let his eyes drop, again, into absorption in his labors. Mad little guy. Tragic, sort of. A cripple. I'll shove off, Paul, Nelson was saying in a moment. Out under the significant stars of the crisp October night, Nelson was approached at once by a shadow. I was waiting for you, Frank. I got a problem. 
The voice was hoarse sorrow, almost lugubrious comedy. Math again, two and two? Sure, shoot. Well, that kind is always around with me, two and two, Baines chuckled shakily. There's something else, personal. We're liable, honest to gosh, to go, aren't we? Some of us, maybe, Nelson replied warily. Sixty thousand bucks for the whole bunch looks like a royal heap of cabbage to me. Split among a dozen guys, it looks smaller, two and two persisted. And you can earn royal dough on the moon. Just for example, plenty to pay back a loan. Still, you don't pick loans off of trees, Nelson gruffed. Not for a shoestring crowd like us. We look too unsubstantial. Okay, Frank, have that part your way. I believe there is still a good chance we will go. I want to go. But I get to thinking. Out there, it's like being buried in millions of miles of nothing that you can breathe. Can a guy stand it? You hear stories about going loopy from claustrophobia and stuff. And I've got to think about my mother and dad. Uh-huh. Other people could be having minor second thoughts, including me, Frank Nelson growled. You don't get what I mean, Frank. Sure, I'm scared some. But I'm going to try to go. Well, here's my point. I'm strong, willing, and not too clumsy. But I'm no good at figuring what to do. So out there, in order to have a reasonable chance, I'll have to be following somebody smart. I thought I'd fix it up now, beforehand. You're the best, Frank. Nelson felt the scared earnestness of the appeal and the achy shock of the compliment. But in his own uncertainty, he didn't want to be carrying any dead weight in the form of a dependent individual. Thanks, two and two, he said. But I can't see myself as any leader either. Talk about it to me tomorrow, if you still feel like it. Right now, I want to sweat out a few things for myself, alone. Of course, Frankie. And two and two was gone. Frank Nelson looked upward over the lighted street. There was no moon, sight of the many enterprises these days in the sky. Now old Jupiter rode in the south. A weather-spotting satellite crept across zenith, winking red and green. A skip glider, an orbit-to-ground freighter vehicle, possibly loaded with rich metals from the belt, probably about to land at the New Mexico spaceport far to the west, moved near it. Frank felt a deliciously lonesome chill as he walked through the business section of Jarviston. From somewhere, dance music lilted. In front of Lehman's drugstore, he looked skyward again to see a dazzling white cluster like many meteors falling. The gorgeous display lasted more than a second. Good heavens, Franklin Nelson, what was that? He looked down at the slight aging woman and stiffened slightly. Miss Rosalie Parks had been his Latin teacher in high school. Plenty of times she used to scold him for not having his translation of Caesar worked out. A lot she understood about a fella who had to spend plenty of time working to support himself while attending school. Good evening, Miss Parks, he greeted rather stiffly. I think it was that manned weather satellite dumping garbage. It hits the atmosphere at orbital velocity and is incinerated. She seemed to be immensely pleased and amused. Garbage becoming beauty? That is rather wonderful, Franklin. I'll remember. Thank you, and good night. She marched off with the small purchase she had made in the direction opposite his own. He got almost to the house where he had his room when there was another encounter. But it was nothing new to run into Nancy Cotis, 
the spindly fifteen-year-old next door. He had a sudden, unbelievably expansive impulse. Hi, Nancy said. I didn't get much supper. Let's go down to Layman's for a hamburger and maybe a soda. Why, good, Frankie. They didn't talk very much, walking down, waiting for their order, or eating their hamburgers. But she wasn't as spindly as he used to think, and her dark hair, even features and slim hands, were nicer than he recalled. I hear you fellows got your space armor sample, Frank. Yep, we did. We're ordering more. Her expression became speculative. Her brown eyes lighted. I've been wondering if I should look outward, too, whether it makes sense for a girl. Could be, I've heard. Their conversation went something like that, throughout, with long silences. Finally, she smiled at him very brightly. The junior fall dance is in two weeks, she said. But I guess you'll be too busy to be interested. Guess just isn't the word, Nance. I regret that, truly. He looked and sounded as though he meant it. In some crazy way, it seemed that he did mean it. He walked her home. Then he went to the next house and up to his rented room. He showered and for once climbed very early into bed, feeling that he must have nightmares. About strange sounds in the thin winds over the mysterious thickets of Mars, or about some black and dried-out body of a sentient being, sixty million years dead, floating free in the asteroid belt. A few had been found. Some were in museums. Instead, he slept the dreamless sleep of the just, if there was any particular reason for him to consider himself just. End of chapter 1, part 2